0: This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Of course, I'm here with Engineer Dr. Paul Myrie. Our guest today is Dr. Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale University. Welcome, Willie.
1: Thank you, Lynn. So glad to be here.
0: Willie, you have been a friend of the Wabash Center for how many years? Oh, for
1: a thousand years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Since the
1: time it was a pup.
0: Since, that's right. Since say, the time it was a pup. Hector was a pup.
1: A pup. <laughs> I've been involved with the Wabash Center. That's
0: great.
1: Probably close to, to 15 or 16 years now. And,
0: and you and I actually met here at the Wabash Center. That is correct. So that's we correct. have been in friendship and in colleagueship and in love for, many, for at least 15 years. Absolutely. At least, Absolutely. at least
1: 15 years. Absolutely. So
0: I am very pleased to tell our listeners that We are here with Willie James Jennings because I have a scoop. There's a scoop. There's a scoop. I know something that nobody else knows, and we're reporting it. We're telling it. (laughs) Willie's got a new book coming out. The title of the new book is After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging. Mm -hmm. So tell us first about how the – because the book came out of a project. Yes. Tell us about the project, and then you and I will talk about this very provocative title – as well as the content of the book. So first tell us about the project that got the book started.
1: The project um, grew out of a grant that the Lilly Foundation gave to Ted Smith, professor of uh, homiletics and ethics at Emory University, to um, do the next iteration of those books that explore the state of theological education. Um, Your listeners might remember the books by David Kelsey and uh, the the great book Theologia by um, uh, Ed uh, Ed Fardley. And so um, Ted was charged with carrying on that tradition and doing a work, convening some people to do a work on um, figuring out kind of where theological education is and where it needs to go, recognizing the crisis moment we're in with theological education. So Ted had been gathering groups of people to just do listening sessions. And out of that, he asked several people if they would participate in a writing project. And so there's uh, 12, I think of us, 12 or 14 of us, all doing small books on um, the kind of the state and the future of theological education. The the genius of his idea was rather than do one large book that was edited, or rather than, or rather having people pour into him doing a book, we each are doing small books, uh, in the in the spirit of the thirty three and a third book series that looks at you know Aretha Franklin or Jimi Hendrix. We're each doing small books that reflect you know our particular perspective on where theological education is now, and where we hope it will go. So it's been an exciting project, and uh, my book will be the first out of the shoot, Woo-hoo! Uh, along with a couple of other people, but uh, mine will be coming out first, and so I'm very excited.
0: And tell us when it's dropping and who's publishing it.
1: It will drop, we, we hope, in early October. We published by Erdman's uh, Press. This is my first time working with Urbans. Even though I'm from Grand Rapids and I I know them very well, I'm excited to be doing this book with them. So um, I I think I'm stretching them and they're stretching me a little bit in in doing this. But I'm very excited about it. As I've said to a few people, it's going to blow some things up.
0: Well, let's talk about blowing some (laughs) things up because, you know, we like doing that at the -hmm, Wabash Center. mm -hmm. So after Whiteness and Education and Belonging, Talk to us first about the title, the very provocative title.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the title was in some ways a bit of a compromise. I had a different title um, moving forward, but um, in talking with the folks at Urban's, you know, we really came to the conclusion that this captures probably a little more precisely um, the direction and the message of the book, which is to try to think about theological education um, beyond the problems, the deep problems and strictures of whiteness in education, and so um, the the first part of it is is uh, it's a play on an, a famous book by another writer, Alice Alistair McIntyre, his After Virtue, um, and this book is uh, After Whiteness, and then the subtitle really comes to the to the heart of what I'm trying to do to offer a different way to think about education inside belonging. And so um, the hope is that the title will communicate to people that it's not just a provocation, but it's an attempt to turn people's thinking in a radically different way about what we do in this thing called not only theological education, but Western education.
0: So with with um, the uptick of people of color in mm-hmm. this country, mm-hmm. with the browning of America that's not about to happen, that has happened. Mm-hmm with theological education trying to grapple with its own um, tectonic shifts Mm -hmm. at the same time that the available pools of people to be students are people of color, old immigrant patterns as well as new immigrant patterns, but certainly no longer white people for the most part. Saying all of that in a nutshell, talking about whiteness is still very difficult for white people and even institutions that are white.
1: Exactly, one of the difficulties we face is that for so many people to just mention whiteness, mm-hmm. for some folks, verges on hate speech. Yes. They are already imagining accusation, guilt, blame, and harm being done to them. Mm-hmm. When in point of fact, what you're trying to do is offer them really an invitation to a new way that would be far more helpful and far more life-giving than operating comfortably in a nebulous idea of whiteness and being white. But it is it is a serious problem. And of course, there are a number of institutions who, are, who recognize, as you point out so nicely, the, the deep demographic shifts that are shaking the very foundations of theological education and Western education. But the problem is, is for so many institutions, not only theological institutions, but colleges, universities, is that they're, they're trying to manage this. And oftentimes the conversations about diversity are driven by management logics. How can we manage, how can we control, how can we maintain what we've been doing while we receive different kinds of people into our space, our established space, and our established ways of being. And so very often, what happens is that the the idea and the recognition of a of a demographic shift hasn't been allowed to do the important work of really forcing upon people a fundamental rethinking of what this thing called education is.
0: Education and racism, mm-hmm. the current model of education that is that is so um, stale. Not all education is stale, but the current current structures of education and higher education, theological education, tend to be stale and staled. Absolutely. Depend on a truncated imagination not to change these traditions. Racism is predicated on a truncated imagination Mm. where even white people don't imagine themselves to be racist or to benefit from racism. Right. So the problem that you are attacking Mm -hmm. is racism in white institutions seems impossible to transform or to shift in with an outside agenda, with an agenda that's right. not just happenstance right. Or, right. or organic. Right.
1: No, I think that's right. The The challenge, and I try to approach it in this book, the challenge is that, uh, in, to my mind, many people who have tried to talk about the relationship of race and higher education, the relationship of race and theological education, have not... Um, taking the time to really open up the ecology, and to understand what what really what's really driving academic ecology, mm-hmm. and how might we really show people, I, I would say for many people for the first time, the ecology they're inside of, you know. So, so some you know, if you take for granted um, the relationship between birds and squirrels and Nuts and trees and rain and wind. And when somebody points out to you that this is a very complex relationship between these things, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you start to see what you're inside of in ways that you've never seen before. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to help people understand what they're actually inside of so that they can then figure out what it is that they want to do because so many people don't, they really don't even have a sense of what they're inside of, what's speaking out of them when they're in academic
0: space. Mm-hmm. So The um, climates that are not good, ecologies, ecological systems, mm-hmm. as higher education, theological education is, and that's part of your premise. If it is not good for people of color, if it is death-dealing for people of color, it is also death-dealing for white people.
1: And that's the, that is the key. That is the key. How do you explain to somebody? That they're inside something that's literally killing them, mm-hmm. when they imagine it as only benefit, yes. and that's the difficulty because um, the the death is so subtle mm-hmm. that you don't realize it until you know you are on your deathbed. Mm-hmm. But this is part of the problem. The way the way we think about education, and in this book, what I'm arguing, the way we understand formation is already, to use my language, so profoundly diseased that we don't understand that we're actually not building people toward life, we're actually building them toward death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do we unravel that, that legacy of formation that so many people are convinced is a really good legacy?
0: Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell a legacy That it is not life-giving, but that's what you're doing in the book. Mm -hmm. And to move from a toxic, um, necrophiliac Mm -hmm. ecology Mm -hmm. to an ecology that is life-affirming and Mm life-giving feels like a wide gap. And I'm, again, back to the word impossible. So what do you, do you have a metaphor for what you're attempting to do? How mm-hmm. do you, we know ecologies can be shifted. Right, right, right. So it's not, we're not talking about structures that can't be, but mm-hmm. so many people are saying just let theological education die because it can't be shifted. Right,
1: right. And I think for some people in, in some contexts, um, I can understand how they can be convinced by the, necessary, by the idea of a necessary death of the education because in some contexts it looks like there's only one possibility. Okay. I, either we maintain the current vision of what we're forming people to be or we give up mm-hmm. because if we can't carry this out, what else can we carry out? And I've spent many years <laughs> and spent many hours, as you know, um, holding the hands of quite a few faculty and administrators who um, are in deep mourning for a loss that they really can't articulate. They they don't know what they're really mourning about. It's not the loss of students, though that's important. It's not the loss of prestige, though that's important. It's not the loss of funding, of course that's important. There's something underlying those losses that they haven't been able to to really get their hands on. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to, to open up the possibilities of a new way of imagining um, theological formation inside of intellectual
0: formation. And you use the notion of belonging. Yes, to do that. yes. So the the, the,
1: the the fundamental thesis of this book is that all of theological education and all of Western education, for that matter, is shaped around one dominant image of formation. Theological education is an, is the most pronounced example of it, but it's it's a problem of Western education itself. And that dominant form, that dominant image of intellectual, even spiritual formation, is formation toward becoming. A white self sufficient man. That's right. Who straight em- man. Yes. White self sufficient man who embodies three virtues. In this regard, it doesn't necessarily have to be a straight man. Okay. okay. Or, or, and it doesn't have to be a man in terms of gender. I mean, here here's why it's so powerful because it's a flexible identity to reach over everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone. So, a white self-sufficient man or you can say a white self-sufficient masculinity but a white self-sufficient man who embodies three what i call demonic virtues possession control and mastery
0: those words are so important they're so, so important.
1: important and um the problem is that all the entire endeavor Of Western formation, whether it acknowledges it or not, is driven by that image. What I'm offering in the book is an alternative image that to shape, kind of an overarching image to shape the endeavor of formation. And that image is Jesus and the crowd. The crowd represents a wide, diverse group of people who would normally never want to be together. In fact, they hate each other, (laughs) would never be together, but they are there because they want to get something from this prophet who they've heard is doing divine intervention in a number of ways, healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, giving hope to the oppressed and and the poor. And they want something from them. And because they want to get to him, they have to be near each other. Mm. So now, now, why that image? Because what's at the heart of that image is the ability, the capacity, if you will, the power to gather people. Yeah. to Not just to gather people, but to gather people deeply and intensely in their difference, mm. in their hostility, in their um, contentions but to gather them. So I'm arguing in the book that theological education at its heart and Western education at its heart, what should be driving our pedagogical imaginations is to cultivate in people not self-sufficient, not a self-sufficiency, but an ability to gather
0: people. And to be in community in a way that is about survival for all the gathered people, yes, yes, not community yes, that is exclusive.
1: Yes. So what does that mean? It means that um, the 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 kind of hermeneutic foundation through which we ought to be thinking and seeing education is belonging. But Western education and theological education banishes belonging. Yeah, it
0: does. I agree with that.
1: Belonging is counterproductive to cultivating the individual who is self-sufficient. And so our our evaluative structures, our structures of reward, all of it. Rugged individualism. It's aimed toward, even the way we we walk out um, intellectual excellence, how we think about how it's articulated, what it looks like, how it's performed, all push against belonging. So in this book, I am um, I, I try to work this out. But it's the way I work it out that I'm, I'm excited about here.
0: Based on ATS statistics, mm-hmm. there are more people of color who are deans and presidents in theological education than ever in the history of record-keeping mm-hmm. of theological education. Mm-hmm. Your book will push them, us, to rethink the intellectual project that they have both inherited and committed to as these deans and presidents.
1: That's exactly right.
0: As people of color who are already suspect in being appointed to these positions as Mm -hmm. deans and Mm -hmm. presidents Mm -hmm. to then come in and call for a radical change, which you are suggesting, a radical change in this intellectual project of imagining how we are together, Mm -hmm. Help, help the deans and presidents know what might help them. Well,
1: what i what I try to do in the book is um, through story and poetry, try to enter try, try to bring everybody into the the deep inter sanctum of this project we call not only theological education but Western education, but sticking with theological education. And to what what I say in the book is that I, I don't Tell the secrets I've learned. I tell the meaning of all the secrets I've learned. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do is to bring people deep inside that inner sanctum so that they can see, see how things actually work and the precise places where it starts to do damage. So what I what I hope, and especially for it for newly minted deans and presidents, is to open up for them. The, the small decisions that will be before them that will either move them and their institutions toward life or move them and their institutions toward more death. The, the, the image that drives um, the kind of work we do is an image that only breeds death and melancholy. And so the, the, the challenge I think at this moment and what i hope to do by this book is to help people see the the steps through which people have contorted their life through through masters programs through doctoral programs through being a junior faculty to getting their tenure to becoming full professors to becoming deans and presidents academic deans and so forth the 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 those decisions they make at every point that contorts their life in in hopes of them arriving at what I call the finished man, Mm. the one prepared to be the self-sufficient man, and a life lost in the search to become that man. And to then, by doing that to say, okay, there is a path away from this that will give you what you want and what you want your institutions to have, to, to be institutions of learning, and formation and community that doesn't require you to live inside this death-dealing persona, this death-dealing way of understanding intellectual work, this death-dealing way of performing intellectually. And um, the reason I can do this is because, as you know, Lynn, I I spent many years as an academic dean and spent many years as a part of Wabash with um, you and uh, this wonderful man over here, Paul Myrie, going to many many schools along with the other staff here going to many places and talking with everybody about the education and listening very carefully and learning learning what's killing us That's right. That's right. uh and realizing that what's actually killing us very few of us have actually put put on put in print and so i i've actually as i say i i tell the meaning of the secrets
0: so much <laughs> of your work is about the soul mm-hmm. Uh, And and the fact that the institution has not, refuses to tend to the soul of its faculty, of its administration, of its students. At the same time that this great transition is happening in theological education, and people are saying the demise of theological education, it is also a time of great opportunity, a time of great hope, a time when the artists and those who are creative, those who are in touch with their soul... Finally, might be given a place to speak with authority, mm-hmm. and with a new sense of how education, theological education, might be um, rich in our society rather than splintered and insignificant in our society. Mm-hmm. So, talk a little bit about the soul aspect of what you're getting. At.
1: You know, one of the this that's a thank you. That's a great, great um, question comment. The um in the in the book. One of the things I talk about is the, the need for schools, for faculty, especially for administrators, to understand how its institution feels mm-hmm. and not just how it thinks. One of the great tragedies in theological education, as, as well as in higher ed, is that we all now have some sense of institutional thinking. The way institutions actually um, do their cognitive mapping, their cognitive work, how the kind of collective thinking goes, but we we have banished the reality that institutions also feel that there's that there's a collective feeling of an institution, and to keep the institution's feeling separated from its thinking is to to mangle its soul not to understand how, in fact, decisions are made. Not just because we've thought through them, but because we're inside a swirl, a chaos of feelings that we are managing often very poorly. And we're, and part of that, managing it very poorly, is that we keep continuing to banish it from the thinking. But the feeling and the thinking fall together. Now, why is this so important? Because When institutions are trapped in whiteness, in the problems of whiteness, they are trapped in both mangled institutional feeling and mangled institutional thinking. And so the the very soul of a school is at stake in this. And one of the difficulties I have found, and I'm sure you have too, to go to many places and sit with faculty, sit with administration, they start to talk to you about their problems, and they're they're wanting to try to kind of have a purely rational way to work out this problem without realizing that there is a swirl of feelings moving in and out of every idea, every decision, and not being able to, to... maturely hold those things together, hold the psychic space together, understand that we're talking about the institution's soul and how to function with the soul of an institution, often means that they never really touch the heart of the problems.
0: So when I've done consultations, and Willie, you and I have done consultations Mm -hmm. together going Mm -hmm. to schools, Mm -hmm. exactly what you described happens. The dean, the faculty person, the department chair will call us in looking for logic Mm -hmm. logical strategies, Mm -hmm. empirical data, tell us what to do that is logical. And then when we ask questions under that, they start saying how people are treated, why people are hurt, what happened to people. They move into narrative, Mm -hmm. they move away from their own logic, Mm -hmm. and don't see the problem with dichotomizing the human experience in those ways. Absolutely.
1: And the irony of it is that this isn't theological education. <laughs> the places where we're supposed to know about humanness it's and things like soul. And- <laughs> well, we
0: don't
1: have, you know, we don't have enough, enough therapists here to deal with that. No, Doctor Jennings, is, look, um, we're, not this, about we're not talking about we're not, therapy. We're not talking about therapy. Therapy is great. That's right. Yeah, we're but, talking about health
0: and wholeness. Right, right, right.
1: We're talking about understanding how the institution, its its collective feeling and its collective wounding that in order to think through the future of the institution, the present of the institution, you have to hold those two together. And of course, getting back to what you asked me earlier, there, there is no way to address the problems of whiteness unless we link together, hold together institution feeling and institution thinking.
0: One of the, one of the um, rational flaws of whiteness is to say white is superior and everything else is inferior to designate most of humanity as inferior is an abominational statement in the first place. Mm -hmm. But yet the Mm -hmm. philosophy and ideologies of white supremacy are normative.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the matters I address in the book uh, is uh, something that no one really has talked about, and that is the, the problems around introspection and introversion i mean introvert within the academy academics we are people who spend a lot of time in our heads and we turn things around where, where a normal human being might <laughs> turn a matter around 10 times an academic will turn it around a thousand times in her or his head just and there's something good about that because you know that's that's the way in which As I like to say in the book, that's the way attention starts to blossom. You're paying attention, but what happens when your intro, your practices, and your disposition and your ways of being, of being introspective, of thinking slowly and carefully, inwardly, turning it inward? What happens when it becomes diseased, and you take into yourself this idea of inferiority, that I've got to prove myself, and every every thought, every action, everything you write, everything you read, thats that, that cancer is working at you. Now, what happens when that starts to spread across an entire institution? Where people are are caught inside this horrible, mangled way of imagining their whole work as they do it. That is, they're constantly doing a, what I call a morbid introspection, morbid self-evaluation that starts to spiral in on them. Now, of course, this happens for a lot of faculty and for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. And um, what it means is that the the very idea of overcoming whiteness, they can kind of give a, a mental assent to, but if it is already so deeply affected their process of introspection, more has to be done than simply saying, "I'm, you know, I'm against white hegemony or white supremacy." But
0: I think more morbid introspection, which is a new term for me, morbid intros- introspection is a requirement of whiteness. If you don't do that and do it well, you will be punished by the system that requires you to do it.
1: This is uh, I tell one story. I'm, I, I tell many stories in the in the this book. But I tell one story of a, of a young guy I knew. Um, we were both in the doctoral program together. And we, we both were invited. Back in those days, it was, um, it was the, the old version of the Fund for Theological Education. And they would, they would bring scholars together, and they would sit us in front of a couple of senior scholars who would offer us advice and mentor us. Well, my friend, he was in a doctoral program on the West Coast, and I was on the East Coast, and so he came and he sat in front of these scholars, and he was already dealing with these, the, this what I call this constructed racial vision of, of intellectual inadequacy. He was already dealing with that; he didn't know enough, didn't understand enough. He sat in front of these scholars, and these scholars just started in on him. You know, you need to read more. You how are you doing with your languages? You know, you know, you, you have to your your, your doctor prof. You know, your director is not very smart, so you had to be smarter than. Than him, all this, and we, we met the next morning for breakfast, and he was, he was, he was so discouraged. The melancholy was thick on the table, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then the scholars who had sat with him the night before came and sat with us, and for breakfast, and by the time he hit his third bite of food, they were they were back at him again, you know, telling him what he needed to do, what he didn't understand. Um, he put his fork down. He he looked at them. He looked at me and said, "You know, um, I was hoping for something different when I came here." Yeah. A few months later, he dropped out of the doctoral yeah. program.
0: I was hoping for something different. I was
1: hoping for something different, yeah. but th- this this is the problem. Um, they thought they were being helpful to him, yeah. but what? <laughs> no, they <didn't>. they <laughs> but, thought
0: they think hostility is what they're supposed that they that's think exactly hostility right. is exactly scholarly. Right. That's
1: exactly right. Uh, but they they wanted to toughen him up, as it were. But what they didn't realize is that they were simply doubling inside of this racially formed sense of inadequacy. That, that you, are, you are aiming toward becoming this self-sufficient man that you will never become. Yep. And so at the end of the day, they had made the, the disposition that he had as a, as a young scholar to think carefully, slowly, turn a thing over a thousand times in his head, They had turned it cancerous. They had helped to turn it cancerous. So the more he thought about himself, the worse he felt about himself. The more he thought about his topic, the more he thought he was inadequate to his topic. The more he thought about the possibility of being a professor, the more inadequate he felt to that possibility. Now, no one would ever say that violence had been done to him because you, you can't see it. But
0: the worst kind of violence had been done to him. The worst kind of violence. The worst kind of violence. They had pierced his soul in that conversation. They had cut him at his deepest marrow, and then left him to be a scholar somewhere. Right.
1: So, so to get back to your earlier question, so what I want for especially new African American or, or um, people of color presidents and deans and academic deans. My urgent plea through this book is to help them walk away from that legacy. And do not bring that legacy into their presidency, their deanship, and do not double down on that legacy in hopes of reviving their institutions by saying we're we're gonna be even more rigorous, we're gonna be even more clear because we're going to banish all our inadequacies in order to save this institution. What I'm saying to them is that if you follow that path, that's death. If, if you step into the job trying to prove to your faculty that you are the most serious of the scholars at the institution and that this institution will be the most serious place for intellectual work, then in point of fact, you're going to drive that institution in a direction that will only speak death. Now, of course, I'm not against serious, rigorous thinking. I want to recast what that actually looks like.
0: I am here with Dr. Willie James Jennings, my friend, my colleague, friend of the Wabash Center. It has been a pleasure. We look forward to your book coming out in October. The book is "After Whiteness: and Education and Belonging." Thank you so much, Dr. Jennings. Thank you, Director Westfield.
1: Glad to be here with you.
0: And we are out. How is that, Paul?